Well, this morning we are going to look at two chunks of Scripture that come one after the other. And I hope to draw out the threads that link them together. What I want to stress before I read the passages is that without any over-inflating, the outcomes that are at stake in these passages could not be higher. Let me put it to you like this. If, if I told a story or a parable about two men and they each did certain things and then I ended the little story, little parable saying something like this. And then at the end of the afternoon, one man came home happy and the other was a little sad. Or if I told a different story and the ending of this other story went something like, and one woman found $5 and the other stubbed her toe. You would think, well, generally happy is better than sad, but it was just for an afternoon. And $5 is better than stubbing a toe, but there's not really anything too great at stake. But these are not the sorts of things at stake in these passages. What Jesus describes is how we receive or do not receive everlasting joy in his kingdom. Follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 18. We're continuing our study through the Luke's gospel just for just a few more weeks. Then we'll drop back for really all of the fall to Advent in the book of Job. But for now, this morning, we're in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to be reading verses 9 through 17. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Continuing in 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, called, excuse me, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer as we begin to study it together? Heavenly Father, as we read this passage, and I believe as we begin to study it, we're confronted with 
the sinking sand of our own righteousness. Even as we just sang about that a few minutes ago. But I pray over and against that sinking sand that you would show yourself strong as the rock. It's not only able to save, but delights to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I grew up, when we go on a vacation, one of the first things, at least as I remember it, uh, that my father would do as soon as the, you know, the van hits the driveway and we park, we all get out, it was unload the car. That was like, I don't know, I mean, it was like before anything else, you unload the car. That's, that's, that's what you did. So last weekend we got away just for a little bit and uh, in the driveway, turn off the car, I get out, first thing I do, unload the car. And I find myself standing at the back of the car, sort of hoping my older kids <laughs> will kind of catch, catch this as well. They don't need to just wait till they're, you know, 36 and have their own family to learn that you can unload the car as soon as you get home. Uh, but I look down to my side and my soon-to-be three-year-old is standing there looking up at me, ready <laughs> for, for me to hand him something. Yeah, you can, oh, all right. And, and so I take, it, I take something and I hand it to him and it didn't take long from me. He just was like, nope. <laughs> and he looks at it, that, that's too big. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is what happened. And, and so, I, so I like took something out of the thing. I handed him and handed him just that. And, you know, he goes into the house with it. And there's a sweetness to his desire to help. But there's a double sweetness, if I can put it this way. Um, the fact that he felt no shame that he couldn't carry the suitcase. There's no shame that I, I needed to hand him something else. That, that, that didn't bother him a bit. You and I, we don't do dependence very well. We do independence, or at least we try to do independence much, much better. Now, most of us would rather grab three suitcases, you know, close the trunk with our elbow, get the storm door with our pinky, you know, almost step over the skateboard and like, I did it, you know. To need help is to be dependent, which we never want to admit. The kingdom of God, however, belongs to those who can't earn it and know they can't earn it. The religious leader in this passage, as well as the disciples, even though they should have known better, they didn't. And even though you and I should know better, sometimes we forget. I want to start by looking at this passage, at the unexpected things that happen in this passage. There's so many unexpected things, it's really almost difficult to list them. The parable and the story and what follows, they're just like these shotgun blasts of contrasts and reversals. It's not just one contrast and reversal, but many. And they're all flying through the passages at once. Let me just consider for a few moments some of them with me. Some of these unexpected contrasts. First, there is the contrast in the characters. We have a Pharisee who was a religious giant. We might compare him to an evangelical pastor with all sorts of degrees. This guy knows it all. And who's he contrasted with? 
a lousy tax collector. Now, Israel was occupied by Rome at the time, and the way that Rome extracted taxes from her citizens was by contracting their own citizens to extract the taxes excessively and often by force. And so here's how it went down. A tax collector would put a bid on a certain region. So they'd say something like, okay, so Pembroke, I'll give you four million. And then they were allowed to, in fact, expected to get that and whatever above that that they could. So they'd take home an extra million, we'll say. Tax collectors were the drug dealers of society. They sort of were around the community just preying upon the community. And so this battle for the best prayer between a pastor and the drug dealer is certainly an unexpected contrast. And you have an unexpected contrast in the disciples and the children, or as they're called in verse 15, infants. The disciples are grown men. They think they can carry all the luggage from the car that Jesus would ever hand them. But these children, especially these infants, they really have nothing to offer him. There's also a contrast in what is prayed. Going back to the first story, both men mention God, but you get the impression that with the Pharisee, his mention of God is nothing more than a perfunctory, An expected gesture. It's really the sort of way that you're supposed to begin a prayer. Look at the contrast in these prayers again. Verses 11, 12, and 13. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like, oh, I don't know, there's this guy right here, tax collector. I mean, can you imagine that? He's going, oh yeah, thank you, I'm a better pastor than I don't know. You know, right? I mean, can you imagine? (laughs) That was ad-lib, that's not even written in there, guys. (laughs) Continuing, I fast twice a week, I give, he's he's marking notes in his sermon right there. Um, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even look up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And to be sure, both men pour out their hearts to God in prayer. And in the one we see the ugly thorns of pride, and in the other we see the beautiful flower of humility beginning to poke up from the soil. The Pharisee in his prayer manages to use the word I five times in just two verses. And he's the subject of all of his verbs. I do this and I do this and whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm doing better than other people. The tax collector, in contrast, only says one short line and he makes God the subject and himself doing nothing. He's just a humble petitioner. He even knows the correct label or owns the correct label. For himself, a sinner. These are unexpected and sharp contrasts. And then there's the contrast of posture and position. The Pharisee goes to the front of the temple grounds. And we presume he feels free to lift his eyes wherever he would like to lift them. But the tax collector, it says he's far off. 
not even daring to lift his eyes towards heaven. In a similar way, the disciples, right? They presume that they're okay with, and in fact, should be the ones close to Jesus. Well, these children, we should just keep them far off. These are contrasts of posture and position. Those are some of the expected or unexpected contrasts. There's also a number of unexpected reversals. Luke loves to tell stories of reversals. See that all throughout his gospel. The whole gospel story of Luke, in a sense, could be described as a great reversal, the great reversal. Look at verses 14 and 17 again. This is how each story is summed up. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The hero, in a sense, is the one who is ordinarily considered a loser. And he knows this. God be merciful to me, a sinner. But it's this man who has his prayer answered by God. And it's this man, not the pastor, who goes home justified. I'll say more about that word justified in just a moment. But first, consider the other unexpected nature of the reversal. In the temple grounds, one man is esteemed and praised. His supposed righteousness intimidates others. When he strolls into the temple, people stare. They whisper in hushed voices. He's both envied and feared by the people that behold his prayer. And he loves to have it that way. Yet in the court of heaven, Jesus says, that esteem means nothing. That's a sobering statement. All the public esteem we clamor for might mean nothing for all eternity if it's not also reflective of God's estimation of things. God esteems humble, joyful dependence upon Him, not independence and self-congratulatory prayer and pride. And how about the unexpected reversal of the children too? In that culture, at least portions of that culture, children were not valued. Children were pushed to the margins until they could grow up and contribute to society because that's what mattered. Only people who can carry their own weight and be independent matter. I'm told that infanticide, the casting off of unwanted infants was common. But in the kingdom of God, there is a great reversal, unexpected one. This man, this God-man, Jesus, a man the crowd sometimes wanted to go and make king, by, even if they had to do it by force, this king calls the unwanted, the dependent, and the needy to himself, welcoming them into his kingdom. Now I suspect, It could have been easy for the disciples to think they didn't need to hear this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. I mean, this parable, as it says in the preamble, so verse 9, you can look at it. Verse 9 says, it's addressed to those who trusted in themselves 
that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's who the parable is addressed to. And it could have been possible for the disciples to think, surely we don't need to hear this. We would never treat anyone with contempt. Except a moment later, as Luke presents it, you have these disciples rebuking infants and the parents who presumably were bringing them. These grown men bark at other humans to keep far off because the Savior doesn't have time for them. And why would Jesus have time for them? These kids are not movers and shakers. They're not wealthy. They can't give anything back to Jesus that he needs. They're little children, and spending time with children is not an effective use of the Messiah's time. His time would be far better invested. He would get a far better return on his investment by spending it with the disciples. Like these disciples who needed to receive Jesus' rebuke, I think we need to as well. We need to hear this. Oh, that God will give us ears to hear it. As I said before, we don't do dependence well, which is an issue with the posture of our heart. There are many things that we can learn from these unexpected details in this passage. We learn first that every person matters to God whether they contribute much to society or whether society deems that they contribute very little. This is why when people get caught up in the story of the gospel, they start to see the implications for the dignity at the beginning of life and the end of life and every moment in between for every race and every ethnicity. But these things about the dignity of every human being I think, at least many times, they do get said well in churches, or at least many churches, and they get said by Christian publishers well, but but I'd like to nuance it just a little bit, so stay with me for a second. So often the theme of these applications of the dignity of human beings, dignity of all people, leads to the conclusion that we ought to go to the hard places to do the hard thing for Jesus. But when we define doing the hard thing for Jesus, we still often include in that definition prominence and visibility in our definition of hard. When it's the obscurity and the lack of prominence that make letting little children come to you hard. I wonder if on our pursuit of an epic application, if our pursuit of epic obedience We miss the point of doing things for the overlooked and marginalized. It can be flattering to our pride to have our phones buzzing and beeping. It makes us feel like people need us. So just to be very practical, what if the humility that Jesus is after meant something like leaving your phone at home while you take your family to dinner so they can have your undivided attention. That's not very epic. It's not exactly going to the hard places, doing the hard things as we normally understand these things, but it is letting the applications of this package trickle down to the details of our lives. Maybe true greatness and notoriety in the world Even notoriety in the Christian subculture are not the same thing. I mean, Jesus could have assembled his entourage with the best and brightest, the strong and the beautiful, 
I suppose that could have made him feel important. But look at the people he draws to himself. It's a beautiful thing what Jesus does here. But that leads to, I think, another rebuke, if you'll go with me just for one more. These truths rebuke our evangelical lust for the celebrity convert. If we could just get certain celebrities to convert to Christ, then the kingdom of God would advance. Oh, if Justin Bieber would just post one more picture of himself and the cool pastors he's hanging out with on Instagram, then maybe the world would know Jesus is cool. That's a thing, by the way. I some of you don't know that's a thing. That's a, that's a thing. If we could just get such and such star quarterback to convert to Christ and go into speaking to her and write book, it would, and I'm not against those things. They're good things, but in the Old Testament, God's people, they, they wanted the giants to fight their battles. So often we still do. As your pastor, I'd be remiss, though, if we only saw rebukes in this passage. I mean, we can fall into the mindset sometimes that like a sermon's only a good sermon if unremittingly the, we just get rebuked the whole time, right? I, I hope you don't have that mindset necessarily, but that is sometimes a good sermon. Well, we really got rebuked. That's not how Paul wrote his pastoral letters to the churches. Now think about our last year. If you go back even before that, we as leaders, we were feeling this crunch in our classrooms for children, or, or these growing desires to have a space where we could hold all of the children of the church and send some of the children, not down you know, through the neighborhood to another building where you know, eventually if they get there, okay, then they can have a study down there. It's what we used to do for our oldest kids. This, we had this growing desire over the last, well, before that, two years ago, that we, we, we've got to fix this. And think of the ways our church, you have been joyfully inconvenienced to help the little children come to God. We sold our church. We sold our office building. And then we moved into a school while we rented this building or renovated this building. And then we moved again. I don't know how many times and how many work days we had to make all of that happen. Inconvenience so more kids could come to Jesus. And this summer, we had our biggest vacation Bible school ever uh, we've ever had, and probably the best reach we've had into a neighborhood before. And over the last two months, we've staffed, I guess we could say, all of the classrooms for the fall with more helpers and more teachers than we've ever filled before. Now, Carolyn tells me there's four more people needed for the nursery. But we've done more than we ever have. Now, don't go leaving church to say, well, I thank the Lord that our church loves children more than all of the other churches. Like, <laughs> okay, then you, you, like we have to start at the beginning again. But, <laughs> but I do want you to be encouraged. We are trying by the grace of God. Well, let me stand back from this passage again for, or at, the, at the end here for kind of the close here for the last page or two. I, I've tried to point out how some of the specific contrasts and reversals in this passage are unexpected. But I think it would be good for a minute to talk about how the gospel, in the gospel, the, the whole gospel, the whole of Luke's gospel, and the whole of the gospel is talked about in the New Testament, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
How in that we have reversals and contrasts that are unexpected and wonderfully so. Now take that word justification. I want to hang the rest of what I'm going to say on that word justification. It's used in this passage in verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, quote, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What did he mean when he said that? I think we need to, I think what Jesus would want us to do, what Luke would want us to do, is widen out across the whole of Luke's gospel. Like in the story, we have the essence of justification, right? What's taking place in that sinner's heart? But across the gospel and across the New Testament, we learn not just the essence of justification, but the things that have to happen so that Christians can be justified. And I haven't explained what we mean when we use that word yet. But I think we need to widen back out. And to do so, I want to illustrate what happens, the two things that happen in justification by going over to something that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. In his letter that we call 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, here's what we read. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. But let me fill in the pronouns for us so that we read it a little easier, that the meaning becomes a little more clear. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, Christians might become the righteousness of God. Thinking caps here just for a moment. I want to tell you a detail that's helpful here. It's helpful to note that the word righteousness is the same word for justified. Or at least they're built on the same word. They're just kind of translated differently in different contexts. So even in our passage, we have it translated both ways. So in verse 9 and verse 14. In verse 9, we read, and if you had a Bible, you can just look down and see it. But we're told that this parable was spoken to those who trusted in themselves and thought that they were righteous. And then in verse 14, we read that the person who went home to his house went home justified, righteous justified. This is the same root word. Now, it's back to 2 Corinthians 5. It's still on the screen. For God made, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be justified in God's sight. This is not a peripheral thing. This is a big deal, right? Every good thing we have in God, in a sense, hinges on this. So it's helpful to understand it. What's going on in the gospel? How is it unexpectedly, wonderfully good news? Well, two unexpected things happen in the gospel. God makes Jesus to be sin and Christians to be the righteousness of God. How do these things happen? Let's go one at a time. The way God made Jesus to be sin was through his death on the cross. Just to give us a visual for this, I want you to picture Jesus like a big sponge. 
And he's absorbing all of our sin, all of our shame of God's people. He absorbed lying and infidelity and love of money and blasphemy of God and our prideful independence. And when he absorbed these things to himself, he bore all of the punishment and the wrath from God the Father that is due to these things, that these things, that these sins deserve. That's one unexpected reversal in the gospel, that he who knew no sin would become sin. But there's more. The verse also says that Christians might become the righteousness of God, that might be justified before God. How did this happen? Well, if Jesus is like a sponge, not only is he absorbing all of our sin, it's also like he's wringing out upon us all of his perfections. Every time Jesus obeyed the Father, every time Jesus told the truth, every time Jesus looked at a woman without a hint of lust, Every time Jesus loved those who were hard to love. Every time the most important person in the universe sat down on the ground and just played with kids. These things are credited to us as though we did them ourselves. He became sin and we became viewed as righteous, justified. Do you see why Christians call What Jesus did, the gospel, why we call this good news? In the Garden of Eden, the serpent whispered a lie to Adam and Eve. You'll be like God. He said, just just take and eat. You don't need him. Rely on your own wisdom. And with this lie and with this temptation, a war began. It's a war that rages in our hearts to this day. It explains why I would try and carry 12 grocery bags into the house at one time. Pride. It explains why I would long for my phone to ping to remind me that I'm important and I matter. Pride. The pride of our heart explains why we might view wonderful opportunities for ministry that just pop up to those who are needy and broken. Why we might view those interruptions as, well I said it already, interruptions. We need to see the gospel of justification by faith in the finished work of Christ alone, afresh. We need it at the beginning of the Christian life and every day that we live in. Let me close with this. There, there are real applications in this passage for us, for how we relate to others. I think that God means for us to see those. Clearly, we're not to treat others with the contempt that this Pharisee seems to treat everyone else. And clearly, we're not to send people away from Jesus who need him. Clearly, from this passage, we're supposed to embrace that we ourselves are dependent. But let's not miss what this passage says about how God is toward us. You can't hear this enough. Jesus doesn't let the little children come to him as a political stunt. There's no photo op. The compassion, this compassion, this mercy to sinners, to welcome those who have nothing to give him but their need, this is actually the posture of his heart towards you. Let the little children come to me is not 
It's not the tagline for his new rebrand. It's not a calculated move to gain more followers. This is what God wants to say to you this morning. You can't hear this enough. You can't hear this enough. God has time for you. He has time for you. And if you come to him with the humble joy of a child, then the concerns that weigh heavy on your heart, no matter how small they might seem, they're not insignificant to him. I'm going to close in prayer and invite the music team to come up and lead us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you, you intend for us to live a certain way in light of every passage, this one being no different. You intend for us to go to the hard places, do the hard thing with zero notoriety because that's the sort of thing you do. But it's not just the sort of thing you do generally, it's the sort of thing you do towards us. And so may we have childlike hearts that have zero shame over our dependence. We need you. We need you, Lord. Would you receive us? Fill us with all the joy that comes with entering into your kingdom as your kids. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.